0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the NS North podcast. I'm Dan Byers and as always joining me is co-host Phil Casgrain. How are you doing, Phil? I'm doing great. And you then? Not too bad. So for this podcast, we have the pleasure of chatting with speaker Kate O'Neill from New York. Welcome to the podcast, Kate.
1: Thanks. It's a... Uh it's nice here in New York today we've we've had the our ups and downs with weather but um we've had these little these little pockets of weather where it's like you know you have the one garment in your wardrobe that you can only wear on certain days of the year and this is that day
0: <laughs> I, I find it cruel these, these are like little teaser days you know then yeah. it'll get nice and it'll
2: get cold again and ugh. It was gorgeous this morning I had to wind up my back when I was biking and I was ah. actually had a to... Personal record over the last four years of a certain segment of roads, I was super happy, and then I broke my handlebars. Oh no! What? Oh my! I, didn't know, I mean, the handlebar was damaged. I, I didn't have, I didn't fall or anything, but it, literally the handlebar broke off. So it's kind of like,
1: what? It's never happened to me. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that story took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> and the afternoon I went to my local
2: bike shop I said I had a broken handlebar they said well we have this uh, spare old one that we were about to throw out and it and it fit perfectly so you know <laughs> Oh
1: Aww. that's it took another turn yeah. Wow that's great Hey I have a question though D- does uh does your Apple Watch provide dan with updates when you bicycle Yes <laughs> We were we were talking before we started recording about how uh, Dan and Phil are Apple Watch friends, and so they get notifications of each other's activity, and I just didn't know the extent to which that happened. Like, you know, was Phil getting coffee alerts for Dan's caffeine indulgences, and apparently (laughs) Dan is getting bicycle alerts for phil but you didn't get a notification that phil's handlebars had broken right
0: no i didn't that would have been like a fall alert i guess i wonder if we can broadcast our fall alerts
1: yeah we can right sudden accelerometer change
0: (laughs) but yeah no phil's a machine i get alerts from that guy all the time my goodness so anyways back to back to you kate um could you tell our listeners a bit about
1: yourself yeah yeah well it's funny because this kind of does relate to me this is a lot of what i uh focus on is the the interrelationship of digital experience and physical experience and how technology impacts our lives as humans um so that's uh the, the work i do as an author and speaker and my uh my last book is called tech humanist uh the book before that incidentally was called pixels in place and this the the topic of you know, kind of uh, how devices track our physical movement and how they alert people within our our social circles and stuff like that is very much uh, in line with with that book. So um, it's very interesting kind of nuances that come out of this work uh, around community and uh, the meaning of place and how all of this ties into, you know, how we relate to one another and how we sort of relate to ourselves in a sense.
0: And so how would you... like? How would you position the book? Like who is the book for? who' you who'd you write it for?
1: So tech Humanist is really geared at uh, business leaders, corporate leaders um, who are in the position of needing to make investments and decisions about digital transformation. That's kind of the 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 sweet spot of of who I think is most likely to, you know kind of gain something from tech humanist. But I also tried to write to practitioners like designers, developers, strategists, and so on who are all making decisions about technology and how how to build technology and design technology for human use. And then there's also this kind of third, broader audience, which is people who are making decisions on behalf of entities like cities, institutions, museums, uh, universities. Uh, Those types of of entities are often my speaking clients and advising clients, and I think that that sort of... um, type of organization is often overlooked in the discussions about digital transformation and and how technology impacts humanity but it's a huge part obviously of our lives to think about how cities and governments adopt different kinds of technology and and what what a a future looks like for cities and for governments and for institutions like museums which incidentally are some of the coolest uh, sites for, for the use of immersive technologies and immersive experiences.
2: You mentioned decisions and people that are making decisions that are influenced by, by, um, their environment and the technology that they're using. But ultimately what we see a lot more today is, uh, and rising is the machines making decisions for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, good point. And a lot of what is, um, is addressed in this book and in my work in general is the rise of automation and artificial intelligence and all types of other emerging technologies that are increasingly looking to data-driven systems algorithms you know machine learning to uh to to create experiences basically to make decisions to um to build the world around us in a sense and the the idea here is to try to align the, the work of business, which is what sort of fosters technology. You know, technology doesn't necessarily advance on its own, generally speaking. It is usually advanced through some sort of commercial intent. Uh, so the, the business objective that is what is helping technology grow and thrive and, and scale needs to be aligned with some sort of human outcome, some sort of human objective. And when those are in alignment, when those things can can make sense together, then the work of, of data and automation, algorithms, all these kind of uh, machine-driven uh, forces can actually make our lives better at scale. You know, we, we're building capacity into the systems that are, are uh, changing the world around us, and hopefully in, in better and better ways all the time. You know, there's certainly the opportunity for dystopian futures but i think (laughs) we need to be looking toward how to how to create more utopian futures than dystopian
2: so some people might have a view of the algorithm as being um non-biased right because it's a machine that it's just a it's just reflecting uh what's been programmed into it but what's been programmed into it has bias so how do you think that uh, people that are creating these algorithms will um will influence them or should try to not influence them
1: yeah, I think that's been a really interesting discussion over the last, like, let's say, last few years um, that the the uh, the discourse has really evolved around this, that um, more and more people within technology, I think it's broadly acknowledged that uh, machines are not without human bias, that, you know, we, uh, we humans are the ones who uh, write the software, you know, build the technology, and uh, when we make decisions about what we encode, you know the values we encode the priorities we encode we're we're always deciding the business rules the business logic that's getting encoded into software and hardware and the the business logic inherently carries with it some sense of what we prioritize about the world so that it implies that it has some sense of our values in that and our biases too and i think that that has become more and more an accepted understanding within the, the technology sphere I think it's becoming something that people in the mainstream are starting to understand a little bit as well because this discussion has been going on so much in the last few years that uh, more and more experts are out there talking about the uh, um, the algorithmic bias that's in place uh, that you know not just not just the software that's encoded but also data sets you know like what um, what happens when someone endeavors to, to collect a set of data about people uh, that they're necessarily imposing some sort of structure on what's meaningful about that data set and who's going to be part of that data set so there's an, a degree of, uh, of exclusionary work that goes on there uh, or an intentional sort of inclusion uh, and that's that's a really meaningful part of the process too so i think that the lack of understanding of bias In the data and in the machine learning is not something that that is going to continue i think we're we're really going to be seeing people understand that better and i I talk a lot about how machines are what we encode of ourselves so we should be try to become our best selves and encode our best selves into what we build into technology because we know that that is what is going to continue to grow and scale and so we want to we want to make our most Evolved understandings be represented in code, and our most egalitarian understanding, our most evolved viewpoints. So that that's the opportunity I think that we have.
0: So, so really, the the emphasis these days on diversity in the workforce and in the workplace, like, really, that might also be one of the key things to influence this unintentional bias. I guess
1: exactly. I think that's one of the things that I think gets overlooked in the discussion about diversity and inclusion is that it, it's, I think it sounds to people sometimes, people of privilege, it sounds like it's sort of um, checking a box or trying to make uh, somebody happy somewhere in, a, in an abstract way, you know, being politically correct or something like that. And instead, I think it's it's becoming clearer to people, I hope, that, uh, that there are real consequences of not having A diverse group of people involved in the building of systems that and and when we talk about diversity we're talking about a lot of different kinds of diversity too you know not just uh, gender diversity or racial diversity but also diversity of life experiences you know the types of of things that you know someone from a different culture or country is going to be able to understand in a nuanced way that's different from the way that someone from another culture or country will understand it uh, or even just someone of a different age or different you know, generation. Those those types of things are really important to have represented within all, t- all kinds of teams, but especially technology development teams.
2: A very simple example would be something like you're building a machine learning algorithm to recognize faces, and you start by building a data set of people you know or something like that or people around you, and then you're going to get an algorithm that can recognize people that kind of look like you and you don't want that
1: very common problem yeah yeah exactly very common problem with um facial recognition data sets that um what has been trained for these types of of systems for these types of data sets are tend to be people who are from a sort of homogenous look or culture um, because people don't necessarily have the diversity of of social surroundings to be able to to gather a data set of diverse participants and so when the facial recognition uh, system or algorithm is confronted with with uh, data examples that don't fit the data set it was trained on, it doesn't know what to do with it and some really aberrant types of results come out of that and and some very offensive and and hurtful kind of things come out of it when uh, when results come back labeled as uh, for example, I know there was um uh, an african american woman uh in who was labeled as a gorilla in in search results uh because of the the lack of clarity of of um of that labeling of of data sets and the lack of diversity in the data set
0: wow that yeah that this just goes to show you the how things can go wrong
1: yeah yeah it, there's there's so many examples of this now and i I really hope that the message is getting out there. Uh, more and more clearly that um, the 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 work of of the tech humanist is is not just sort of a um, a feel good like let's sit around the fire and sing kumbaya like we're really talking about the fact that machines are all around us uh, that we're we're building software and code into just about every aspect of human experience and these these uh, aspects of human experience are going to be uh, increasingly um, in control of our day-to-day lives. And they are driven by business objectives. And those business objectives are not necessarily aligned in many cases with human objectives. They're aligned with profit objectives. And what's gonna happen as more and more businesses are uh, adopting automation and, and AI, you know, sort of intelligent automation and other emerging technologies, is we'll see gr- businesses grow faster and bigger than they ever have. And I think that is where the, the real concern is. I mean, I'm not against companies making a profit. I'm just not interested in profit being the only measure of success for companies. I think that's where we we end up allowing all kinds of things to grow out of proportion. So if companies would would instead figure out what they're trying to do in a way that is uh, in in some way aligned with some kind of human objective. And I mean, uh, even just as clear as um, you know Southwest Airlines, for example, I, I always love the example of them figuring out that they are a, a low cost airline, which seems like it's a very simple proposition, but in every way that they build out their brand, their operations and their experiences, they dimensionalize that and they have bought the customer into the process and their their technology uh, adoption shows that as well. They've been able to make investments into technology that helps them stay operate operate at an efficient level, uh, and and all all types of uh, of decisions are able to be made in a much more streamlined way because of that that clarity that they have. You know that I love that the fact that their their ticker symbol is love LUV. Um, and oh, I go really? on and on. Yeah, I love it. There's, there's so many great things about their, their whole brand and their culture as a company. Huh. And they're an example of a company that's been profitable year over year for however many years, 20 years or, or whatever it's been.
0: So you, so you think that has a foundation in how they approached the, the user or, uh, <clears throat> customer centric design of their, of their entire operation,
1: yeah, I think the the deal is, you know, it's not just a low-cost airline. It's a low-cost airline that is looking to the customer to say, this is what you want, isn't it? And the customer says yes. And the the acceptance, that sort of understanding between the brand and the customer is acknowledged in all sorts of uh, winky sort of ways. Like there's uh, the the idea that that Southwest figured out that one way to cut down on cost was to not serve meals on planes, which, you know, back... A few decades ago, it was like something that people sort of expected. You were going to get served a meal on a flight. and
2: With actual utensils.
1: With actual utensils. But of course, nobody ever looks forward to airplane food. So <laughs> At all. I don't know that anybody ever did, even if you're in first class. I mean, <laughs> it's not the best meal you've ever eaten in your life. So they, they figured out, oh, we can just cut this out. And instead, we'll just serve little bags of peanuts. And peanuts, of course, are a colloquial metaphor for not a lot of money. So there's this kind of wink and nod that's happening when they acknowledge that they're saving people money and they're handing them this little bag of peanuts. And it's all kind of a little joke everybody's in on. And then, like I said, the love uh, ticker symbol, you know, the flight attendants make their safety announcements famously with a lot of fun and character. It's just the whole experience is very, very different from what other airlines used to be. I mean, a lot of them are starting to adopt many of their practices. And uh, I don't mean to go on and on about Southwest. I just think they're an interesting example of when you look at, even operationally, they, they initially they streamlined all of their operations to be able to do short hops, and they were all the same type of aircraft so that they could have all of their uh, flight crew be able to operate any of the planes, which was much more operationally efficient than what other airlines were doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you just look across the board, every decision, operational experience, brand, everything was being made from this place of how do we make this synthesized? How do we make this all a coherent vision? That's not really just about being profitable or saving money. It just happens to lend itself to becoming profitable. It's about, you know, buying into the same idea, everybody being part of this same vision. Right. Again, I think that's the, the uh, it's a confusing example, perhaps, because it does end up becoming a pro- uh, it's an example about saving money and it ends up being a profitable company, but I think the objective here is to find out what it is that you're doing in a way that is richer and more meaningful than in the uh, the obvious of, you know, let's just make money. I had a, a guy that I used to work with who used to joke that if all we wanted to do was make more money, we could just sell pizzas out the back door. <laughs> And that's the truth, right? Like if that's all you're trying to do is, is you know make a little more money, there's always ways to make more money. They're not just necessarily going to be in alignment with what you set out to do.
2: Yeah. So you mentioned the business rules and that how the, the, these metrics will drive some businesses and you gave the example of Southwest, but there are some other business rules like uh, engagement or, or metrics that like engagement and those are famous on social media. And if you want to increase those, You tend to create self-reinforcing cycles. Yeah. So increase it. So how do you? uh, How should we approach that? These uh, these kind of uh, bubbles that tend to be created by these rules.
1: Yeah. So you know, while profit is the the one-dimensional metric that uh, business leaders have tended to focus on too narrowly. In the digital engagement space or the digital experience space, I think the one metric that we have uh, learned to focus on too narrowly is engagement. And so you get these these self-fulfilling cycles where, uh, like at YouTube, for example, where uh, when you finish watching one video, the algorithms that are in place are there to try to figure out What's going to keep you watching most likely when they're going to serve you up increasingly engaging content, which in the land of YouTube means increasingly controversial. And so you end up seeing a lot of radicalized content, you know, politically radicalized, radicalized content show up very quickly. You don't have to get a few clicks into the YouTube stream <laughs> before yeah. you're generally seeing some sort of politically radical content. Uh, and they're trying, I think, to to address this. You know, Google as a whole, YouTube specifically, the, that division of of Google. But I think, you know, this is uh, this is the, the the real life consequence that we're dealing with as a result of everything being optimized for one dimension and not thinking in a more holistic, meaningful way about what is it we're trying to do here, what is it we're trying to fulfill, how do we, as a let's say, a video platform. Fulfill what someone has come to us to achieve Uh, Maybe I've come and I've searched for you know how to cook asparagus or something like that Not not a real-life example. I know how to cook asparagus (laughs) Um, But if I did want to find out how to cook asparagus YouTube is of course a wonderful place to look because there's guaranteed to be you know a hundred videos of people explaining exactly how to cook asparagus and once i've finished watching how to cook asparagus there might be uh another video on cooking but two or three down the list there might be something about some you know right wing conspiracy theory or you know it's it's not very difficult to understand how this works instead you know what what might be useful from a, the youtube standpoint is if you're trying to create a meaningful experience for me understand the nuance of my search for cooking. And there's something inherent about that I'm interested in cooking, but more than that I'm interested in learning. I'm interested in learning information that helps make my life more fulfilled in some way. So there's a nuance, there's a dimension of of the metadata that could be ascribed to this, that could create new instances of uh, videos that that are Possibly interesting to me because I've already demonstrated that I'm someone who has kind of an aspirational learning style or or a lifestyle type of approach to to video watching.
0: So, so from the from the perspective of that metadata, like, do you think that the like for these global systems like YouTube and Facebook, like their their metadata is just not as complete as it needs to be to be able to provide, you know this type of experience you're asking. And like when, if they were to try and accumulate that kind of metadata, would that be a privacy issue or like how, how does that limit itself to privacy issues?
1: Yeah. I I don't think that YouTube is lacking in metadata. I just don't know how meaningful (laughs) their metadata is. And I don't know how, um, I don't know how meaningfully they can go forward from here. I believe there's a path forward for for YouTube. I mean, there's so much content on YouTube already that it's you know a a, a given that there's going to be a um sort of a lack of structure to what's already there.
2: I, I think the last time I looked was for every minute of every day, there's ten minutes of video that's uploaded to to YouTube. Yeah, so it's it's. You can't keep up, it's impossible.
1: Of course. And accelerating all the time.
2: Exactly. So so when you say metadata and, and um and adding like if I make a video about asparagus cooking, I can I'll put that as a <laughs> keyword and mm-hmm. people are gonna find it and that's awesome and it's good metadata. But there's a bunch of people out there that for them to just put random keywords so that their video will be caught by some algorithm somewhere.
1: Right. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, believe me, having spent many years of my life surrounded by the uh, search engine optimization industry, I understand that keyword stuffing and, and that sort of those sorts of practices are going to be the way some people are going to think they should go when they just feel like they need to sort of locally optimize. They need to figure out how to game the system. Uh, But I think that the algorithm needs to be smarter than that. More than the algorithm being smarter than that, the company needs to be smarter than that, right? Like there needs to be some sort of understanding of what it is the company is trying, what what the company is trying to uh, satisfy and who their customers are, like what the customers come to them for, what the people come to them for and how they can best provide a meaningful experience in people's lives.
2: That will take a significant effort though, because they, they need to shift their mindset from say profit or engagement that they can talk about their board of directors to something much more holistic, which might be a hard sell.
1: The thing that's so interesting to me, though, is that in the work that I do, a lot of my audiences are corporate leaders and executives. And it is so consistent that the people that I meet want to do better. They want to create better business. They want to be part of making the world a better place and this is it's not just hollow talk they they really want to understand how to align the what they what they know traditionally from you know business school and all of their work thus far with the way of the future you know with the way of of uh, scaling automated intelligence like the this this path forward with data driving decisions and you know, tech, technological experiences being what we all live with every day. This is something a little daunting to to many executives. There's a there's a rate of change that's terrifying, and they know that they have to lead their companies into uncharted territory. They they don't understand what the full consequences are going to be of different types of governance that they put in place, and they don't necessarily understand how they're going to, uh, you know, kind of modernize their operations. But I I do find that most of them, uh, most of the people I talk to, demonstrate a real interest and intellectual curiosity for how to make this work, how to to make business better, while also making it better for for humanity. So I take a lot of hope from that. I, I don't think that this is you know, as as dark and, and uh, depressing as it's easy to make it sound, it's just hard. It's
2: like if the companies would only present things to their board because they have to, right? Because they're forced to by some law or something. If we could avoid that, that'd be great.
1: Sure. And, you know, you got, you, you're going to have to deal with regulations eventually. Like that's going to be a part of this process. And I think, you know, we're starting to see what it's going, what it looks like as uh, the consequences from GDPR in Europe you know, play out, and companies have to pay up for non-compliance, and uh, more and more companies obviously start to look at that and start taking it a little more seriously, and and the fuller consequences of what that's going to look like long-term start to become more clear. But that's only one set of regulations, and every country and every you know sort of governing body eventually is going to have its own set of regulations around this area right you know around data data privacy and uh tech, various kinds of technological uh a- algorithmic decision making so it's going to be complex for sure uh but i do, i think that you know we're not going to get away from the fact that um there's there's a really difficult path without the regulations being in place one of the things that i i find is a lot of my work lately has been pulling me toward uh, data privacy and toward the ethics space of technology, so AI ethics and data ethics and so on. And what's so interesting to me about ethics is, of course, I'm I'm wired as a very ethical person, so I sort of feel like uh, intrinsically there's I understand what ethics are, but then when I try to think as an analyst and I try to think like how do you codify ethics? How do you break that down into a, a structural set of of decisions that can be um measured and uh determined if they're in compliance and even automated at some level it's really challenging ethics i find are are more abstract than than um many abstract concepts one of the abstract concepts i worked with a lot i work with a lot on an ongoing basis is meaning and meaning is really abstract <laughs> but i think there's something really Uh, compelling about saying that experiences should be meaningful as opposed to saying experiences should be ethical because meaningful experiences mean there's an implication that there's something relevant. There's something significant that's happening. And there's an implication that there's some sort of alignment that's in place. Like uh, you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing and some sort of meaning is being exchanged between us uh, and that seems like it's sufficient to the purpose of a, a business transaction. And I think that what's compelling about that is that meaningful experiences lend themselves to being memorable. They lend themselves to being, uh, to fostering loyalty with customers. They uh, they tend to generate more um, employee retention, you know, sort of um, a sense that the employees are part of something that feels like it has a purpose. Uh, so all of these good things happen as a result of focusing on creating meaningful experiences. Whereas I think creating ethical experiences feels really good to say, but in practice, I don't know that it necessarily aligns all that well with with what we traditionally use to measure the success of business. So it becomes very challenging to provide the right incentives. Yeah, if that makes any sense.
0: It it very very much does. Like if you if you think of the like the simple example of Apple like with how they've, you know, approached the entire platform with iOS and the iPhone. And then also with the watch, like everything's tied around context and relevancy, right? With mm-hmm. with how you use both platforms there. And and like we see tremendous brand loyalty with that as well. Like people are just completely addicted to, to how easy it is to get notifications now and to, to handle things when they need it. Yeah. So that that makes that makes a ton of sense from from what you're saying there.
1: So you know, and this is something that uh, I, I delve into a lot. In I, I dealt with it some in, in Pixels in Place, but I delved into it even more within Tech Humanists. Like this idea of meaningful experiences is one that really drives me. In fact, when I describe the idea of of companies, I, I want companies to identify their strategic purpose. You know, what is it that they're trying to do? What they're trying to achieve? at scale. Mine is I want to create more meaningful experiences. I want to help the world create more meaningful human experiences. Because I genuinely feel like that that's kind of the key to putting these pieces together, to figuring out how, you know, technology can advance and do all the wonderful things that it has the potential to do through the work of business, which is going to commercialize it Uh, It is going to take full advantage of the commercial opportunities and bring it to full capacity and scale while also hopefully solving business, uh, sorry, solving human problems and aligning somehow with some sort of human objective or human outcome. And if all of those pieces fit together, then we really have some promise for the future. If those pieces are not in line, then we have some trouble.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so is your perception that a l- the majority of businesses aren't quite getting that at this point?
1: <laughs> I know my my sense is that the, that problem has not been uh, clearly enough identified. I, you know, my work is about making it clear and helping um, both business leaders and, you know, practitioners, you know, any, everybody who's involved in the process, you know, kind of understand better what their role in the process is. And I find great acceptance of, of the idea. I find most people when they hear this articulated clearly enough, they go like, that's it. That's what, that's what we've, that's the magic formula. And I, I hear some great results. There's this um, human centric digital transformation work that I, ha- I, I do. And there's a workshop and there's a canvas that I offer to my attendees of this workshop. And one of the attendees was the CEO of a utility company in South America. And he walked through the work of, of identifying purpose and aligning values and priorities and you know all of the other work uh, of making sure the operational objectives fit and so on. You go through all of these pieces before you get to how you're going to model this all in data and how you're going to amplify the purpose through technology. So techn- um, digital transformation is following the the purpose of the the business. So he goes through all of that work. He gets to a point where he has an insight about uh, how he's going to be able to automate some functions within his customer service department that will uh, both address customer inquiries more efficiently and have the human workers that are going to be augmented, you know, whose jobs are going to be augmented by these, you know, chatbots or automation be able to be part of building more nuance into the answers that are going to be automated into this process so they get more valuable work experience and they get to add more meaning to this process so he's he followed up with me and reported back on the results and they were incredible the the amount of money that they were able to save the amount of jobs they were able to impact you know people that were able to have more meaningful work that they were doing, and the rate at which customer inquiries were being fielded went up significantly. So, all all factors were Im- improved, and I think it's just it's not that difficult to understand. It's just the pieces need to make sense together.
0: Yeah, oh, it, it, that that must be so fulfilling to to see that happen with you know something that you're doing so much research on and you go and see it put into practice and it's actually working. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is really fulfilling and it it's really inspiring that you know the idea that if I if I can keep getting this message out there and keep getting it in front of people and and help help people understand how to put this in place that again these are these are not difficult concepts. It's not like people Say back to me like now what was this again about you know aligning business and human like no no it makes sense it's just something that you know it hasn't been articulated in quite this way and yeah. so when when they hear it they they get it and I'm really encouraged to get out there and talk about it more
0: yeah that's that's like the number one reason why why it's so awesome that you're coming to us north yeah like you know we 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 don't hear enough about this kind of a message where it's it's got to be like think of the problem that you're solving and who you're solving it for first, you know, and like whenever we go to build our apps, it's, it's, it's a critical question.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's always encouraging to get in front of developers too, because the, you know, it's the direct line to the code and the, the, the work that's being built. Uh, So that's, that's always one of my favorite types of audiences. And I love, I love being able to kind of take that, the immediacy of the work, and, and understand how that's going to play out for people yeah so the the questions i get are completely different and <laughs> it's yeah really, it's really wonderful
0: <laughs> well sure and like we're, we're not we're not trained on user experience either right like we're mm-hmm. we, we have a pretty big gap in that in that perspective so that that that's where we i, I think there's some i think there's some good gaps there to fill um but yeah, like uh I'm no, really looking forward to it. So, whenever you're not uh doing boatloads of research and discussions around these topics, what do you what do you do with your time?
1: <laughs> well, you know, most of my time is uh is spent on this. I I I really enjoy my work, so uh, you know, writing and speaking are are what I do and then the travel in between you know to get to the gigs is is what's my hobby in a sense but i live in new york and that by itself is a hobby in a sense i love the <laughs> fact that you know i i'm surrounded by you know the all the people of the world in in a sense like new york is this is the true melting pot experience of of what you know america has always been called the melting pot but it's really new york <laughs> it's yeah. like you know i live in midtown manhattan And I really find it fascinating that just to walk from my apartment to Central Park, which is about two blocks, uh, I could literally hear uh, 20 or 30 languages being spoken along that two block walk. Right, (laughs) it's astonishing, it really is. But, and and to me it's really significant because I'm a linguist by education. So I love, love being surrounded by so many languages. Um, And the fact that the languages represent so many different worldviews, so many different life experiences, so many different cultures, that that I find really fascinating. And everywhere I travel, I get to experience, you know, the little microcosms of that.
0: Yeah, And, and it leads more and more to your own research, too. So, like, it's kind of...
1: It it's kind does. of self
0: propagating i guess to
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it really it's it's like um, you know getting to see how people use technology getting to see you know the dimensional ways that people connect with one another what what's meaningful about their interactions and yeah all of that you know feeds right back into the passion for what i do so yeah i'm i'm very very fortunate very grateful for for the work that i'm able to do so
0: are you a bagel eater like A bagels? bagel eater.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know if you could live in New York and not be. I suppose if you're like you know celiac or something, it, there must be <laughs> glu- gluten-free bagels in this town somewhere.
0: So there's there's always the big debate about oh. New York versus Montreal bagels,
1: right? So
0: we're gonna. I I suspect you probably haven't had a Montreal, a true Montreal bagel before. Uh,
1: A true Montreal bagel. So this is literally this is going to be my first trip to Montreal, which I'm really excited about. Oh, awesome! Yeah, Um, and there is a a a bagel place in New York that's a Montreal style bagel place, but who knows how authentic Uh, that really is. (laughs) If you're
2: if you're curious about bagels, wait till you see poutine.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as a vegan, I'm afraid that's going to be a more challenging option for me. But I did see I've actually done my research and I found vegan poutine options. So I'm looking forward to that.
2: They do exist. Yep, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: Wait, wait, wait. Regular poutine is not vegan? Well, no. It's got uh, cheese curds and the gravy is typically from beef stock.
0: Yeah. Oh, of course. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Just close your eyes. Yeah. It's, it's too good to not enjoy. Well, if they it. can make squeaky tofu, you're all set.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been vegan for 20 years, and the amount of uh, change and progress that's happened within vegan cuisine so to speak in that time is really remarkable like if you if you could have said vegan poutine like 20 years ago someone would have laughed at you but you know it's just it's normal to think now it's like oh okay well you're trying to do a vegan version of something like there's vegan meats there's vegan cheeses you can do anything you want yeah. Yeah. technology
2: <laughs> we, we have the way to do it
1: <laughs> the
2: technology <Yeah.
1: laughs> food has had innovation too it's a pretty amazing thing
2: Thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight,
0: Kate.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
0: It was such a pleasure just t- talking with you and getting to learn so much. My goodness, we, we can't wait to, to hear your talk in, uh, in a week and a half. It'd be wonderful. Yeah,
1: I can't wait to, to be there and try some bagels. <laughs> very good. All right. <laughs> Great to talk with you both.
2: And thank you, Dan, for hosting with me. Ah, oh, No problem. Thank you, Phil. And uh, we hope to see you all in Montreal uh, very soon. And if you're listening to this later, well, uh, we hope that uh, you've enjoyed this podcast and uh, we'll talk to you later. Take care, everybody.
1: You have coffee?
2: I do have coffee.
0: <laughs> I spilled your secret, Then <laughs> <laughs>
2: It'll help me survive.
1: Now we're getting nerdy. <laughs>
2: So Dan is my friend on Apple Watch and we we taunt each other with things. And at one point it was like, I think it was 2 p.m. And I got a notification that Dan had completed his standing ring. I'm like, what? It's 2 (laughs) p.m.
1: Does it tell you when he's had too much coffee? (laughs) (laughs) He get this notification at 2 in the morning. Dan's caffeine intake has exceeded what it's recommended (laughs) The LD fifty. You're like, what? <laughs> Two in the morning? I know yeah. the conference is coming up. But come on, Dan. <laughs> now you're messing with my sleep.
0: Jeez, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll sleep on the twenty ninth. That'll be good.
1: Well, Apple Watch friendship is a lot more complicated than I imagined. It is. <laughs> it's like a, it's a big responsibility. It sounds like
2: well if some uh, like dan goes on a run for instance I, I can tell him good job you're my favorite runner and things like that so it's, Aww. Like, it's convenient yeah starting a conference is like bicycle shorts it reveals a lot about a person <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh My goodness, <laughs> there is a visual i will not be able to cleanse from my mind